Welcome listeners. You're tuned into the official podcast of the Joseph Rainey Center for Public Policy. We're a public policy research organization and leadership community founded on the values of freedom, equality, and a more perfect union where the American dream is for everyone. Our namesake is the former Congressman Joseph Rainey, who was born enslaved and became the first Black American to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. We're a place that fosters dialogue on actionable solutions to America's challenges while amplifying the voices of women, minorities, and mavericks in public policymaking. My name is Sarah Hunt, and I am the CEO and president of the Rainey Center. We're really glad that you're listening, that you're part of our Policy for the People audience and family. And we hope that you leave this episode learning something. And I'm telling you with the two guests we have today, the great Steve Hayward and the incomparable Clarence Edwards, you absolutely will. I want to introduce our guests in a little bit more depth. First is Clarence Edwards. He is Legislative Director for Sustainable Energy Environment at the Friends Committee on National Legislation, where he focuses on advocacy to support policies that help build a low-carbon economy. The Friends Committee on National Legislation is the advocacy arm of the Quaker Church, the Society of Friends. For those of you not yet in the know, now you are. Clarence also has a distinguished history of public service. He began his career as a staff assistant in the U.S. Senate, and he has also worked for the Department of Energy and the State Department. Steve Hayward is a senior resident scholar at UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies and a visiting lecturer at Berkeley's Law School. As you can see for a conservative, he is a complete wallflower who doesn't like a challenge at all whatsoever. It might be a little hard to get an opinion out of him today, but Clarence and I will do our best. He is also a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is cool. And even though we're pals, I had no idea that you were a fellow over there. Uh, my friend Katie Harbath, who has been on this podcast and is on our advisory board at the Rainey Center, is also a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. You've probably caught some of Steve's work in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, or one of his many books. He's also got an amazing podcast himself and a blog, powerlineblog.com, one of the nation's most read political websites, where you can find what your meme of the week, your photo of the week. It's all pretty good stuff. Check it out. Steve and Clarence, thank you for being here to talk to me. You're two of my favorite people favorite thinkers about these issues of energy, sustainability, climate, and just being a human on this earth. So I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. And I'm sure everyone else cannot either. One of the ways that we've all connected is around this philosophy called eco-modernism. So I'm going to throw that out there. What is eco-modernism? What does it mean to you? Do you consider yourself an eco-modernist? So first of all, I think we ought to give a shout out to our friends at the Breakthrough Institute, who I think came up with the phrase, but certainly spearheaded coming up with the eco-modernist manifesto, which listeners should look up on the web if they're curious about some of the fine points. I think the main points uh, are two. One is it represents a deliberate turning away from the old Malthusianism that really defined the old, what I call the old generation of environmentalism from the 70s and really earlier, right? I mean, Malthus was that gloomy 19th century economist who said, we're all going to starve to death because we'll use up resources and reproduce too fast. And 
you know, that's been the heart of a lot of environmentalism until the last, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years when a lot of environmentalists have said, actually, that's wrong. There's a lot to be said for progress, for increasing material efficiency, for environmental improvement. And the drivers of that, and this is the second main point, has been economic growth, which is twinned with technological progress. So uh, we've got a long way to go in a lot of areas, of course. Um, but uh, once again, a corollary of the old Malthusianism was a hostility to technology, both philosophically and practically, practically in the case of nuclear power. Philosophically, uh, you can point to all kinds of examples, but I think I've rambled on long enough for an opener. It's the only manifesto that... A lot of conservatives I know are interested in. Yeah. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Usually you hear manifesto, you want to run the other way as fast as you can. Right. I was going to say, <laughs> Marx is part, Marx, Karl Marx popped into my head. Oops. Is that what eco modernism means to you? Sure. I think Steve's covered it, but I'll also add that what, what appeals to me, and I don't know whether I'm an eco modernist or not, to be honest with you. You know, and shout out to the Breakthrough Institute for for uh, leading me to this podcast today, really, because it was through my um, learning about Breakthrough that uh, I met you, Sarah, and um, that I'm on this podcast today. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate the work. When I think of eco-modernism, I think of one of the first things that comes to my mind is optimism and uh kind of a belief in human, um, the human ability to solve major challenges. That's really what sticks in my head. Uh, the economic growth that comes along with uh, uh, a greater use of technology is, is a key element of it. But what, I, what appeals to me about eco-modernism, and the more I learn about it, is that faith in humankind and our ability to solve uh, challenges. So that's why it is increasingly um, an appealing concept to me. So I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball question that I think both of you might appreciate. Thinking about eco-modernism and your experiences during the COVID pandemic, what do you think that eco-modernism has to share with us uh, in terms of what we all just went through as a nation, as a, a world, really, everyone experienced it. Uh, what are the sustainability implications? What does eco-modernism tell us about that? You know, I will start with Operation Warp Speed, not only here in the U.S. where we developed three vaccines, but other countries as well, China, Russia, et cetera, in record time developed vaccines to help slow and end this pandemic. And I think that's one place where optimism as envisioned by eco-modernism and that embrace of technology is helping us address a problem. There's a good, uh, a good parallel and a bad one. Uh, the good one is the one you just referenced, Sarah, which was, uh, and to add a little bit more to it, you know, we've been doing, we, you know, the advanced scientists in the pharmaceutical industry have been doing this advanced research on RMNA, I think that's the right acronym, technology for vaccines. So we had a great body of work on the shelf we could pull off and now apply to something new. 
we may see a parallel with that. I mean, you know, everyone talks about fusion power someday and, you know, biofuels and algae and all the rest. All those things are being researched and pursued. And at some point, we may wake up one day and find out that they are practical and ready to go. Uh, Some of them are going to come that way, I think. Uh, the bad part is, uh, and here this is sort of a, a parallel of the older environmentalism. You know, the first wave of environmentalism was things like the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, big centralized solutions, standard regulations, um, um, emission standards for factories, and that, that all worked pretty well. The second generation environmental problems is like COVID in this respect. Uh, you know, stormwater runoff, uh, agriculture runoff, much less susceptible to a centralized, uniform rulemaking prog- uh, process from Washington. And we haven't figured out how to deal very well with a lot of those problems. They need local solutions based on local knowledge. And in COVID, you know, we, we ran for, you know, uniform lockdowns in some cases and policies that are incoherent and make no sense to ordinary people. So what you wear, wear a mask when you go into a restaurant, but when you sit down, you can take off the mask. What is the, the virus only exists six feet in the air and not at four feet. I mean, and you know, ordinary people look at that and say, I don't understand this. And never mind the vaccine hesitance. A lot of people have There's been a great failure of communication and public, you might say public rational discourse about all this. Uh, and seems to be so much conflicting information around like environmental issues sometimes uh, that I think there's, you know, positive and negative lessons to be taken from the COVID experience. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think in terms of technology, when Steve mentions RNA, you know, we were able to pull technologies that we've been investing in more or less off the shelf. And so that was really, you know, Right place, right time is maybe not the right phrase, but, you know, that technology and this pandemic, um, we were lucky in that regard. Yeah, it immediately made me think, yeah, there are probably climate solutions on the shelf. There are climate solutions on the shelf that we're investing in. You know, uh, carbon capture popped into my mind. I've been doing a lot more reading about carbon capture and storage now, and a lot of people in the uh, advocacy NGO community are not supporters of something like carbon capture. But yeah. to my mind, if we we should make investments in the technologies, we have the technology right now to do what we need to do in terms of uh, uh, renewable energy and so forth, but to keep investing and to keep pushing the balance of technology so that we can have these breakthroughs. We don't know what 10 years from now will be out there that might help us in addition to renewable technologies. So that's the one thing that makes me think of. Steve raises a really good point, though, too, around the communication. And if anything, hopefully COVID is a, is a test run or it helps people to see some of the gaps and some of the challenges that we face globally, particularly in the United States, in terms of how do you communicate with publics around some of these major issues in a clear way and get people on side? Because if it's confused and if people are changing what you should do, uh, if the message is muddy, then, you know, the public which is already sort of nervous about how to respond to climate change. I worry that unless we really get a handle on how we start talking about climate issues, we can have some of the same type of pushback that we've seen uh, that we see with COVID. That's really interesting. You know, we've definitely seen COVID and the response to it 
become politicized. It's always fascinating to me that right of center has more vaccine hesitance in the U.S. when you had President Trump being so proud of the development of the vaccine through Operation Warp Speed and getting the vaccine himself. So I thought that was really interesting. I think that one of the challenges we face, whether it's right of center or center of center or left of center, is that there's just the information overload that people are experiencing. I think that that comes into play with something like uh, COVID and will probably come into play with climate. I just think people are having a hard time processing everything that is happening to them right now. So that's... um, that's kind of an underlying concern there. We can have the technology, but unless we communicate better, um, we're not going to really make any progress um, in dealing with climate issues. Communication is, is needed as much yeah. as anything else right now. Yeah, I have a slightly different view, but uh, we, we can oversell community. I mean, I agree that better communication is necessary, but it's not a magic bullet, partly for the reason that Sarah hints at. If Trump had been reelected right now, anti-vax sentiment would be entirely coming from the left. <laughs> and instead, it's True. because, right, it's because True. of our partisan Kamala breakdowns, Harris, right? Kamala uh, yeah, said right. as much during the campaign. Right. That she didn't want to take a Trump vaccine. Right. And, and one of the things that... Um, amuses me in one sense. It's not amusing, of course, in the end, is so many uh, people on the right are now aligning themselves with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's been anti-vax for all vaccines for you know a couple decades at least, right? And who otherwise wouldn't agree with him about anything else. Um, and I just I, I see on Twitter people on the right saying, oh, we're with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I'm just sort of astounded at all that. That is not the bipartisanship that eco-modernists are looking for. Right. Well, so <laughs> I, I think one of the... I have a lot about a lot of thought about this on another context. <clears throat> I don't know if part of because I'm teaching, of course, on the presidency at Berkeley this semester for political science. And one of the things I started paying attention to and actually trying to quantify a little bit is that the old fashioned Oval Office address of the president sitting behind the desk has kind of fallen out of fashion. Trump tried a couple and he was really bad at it. Um, Trump's no good except when he's in doing performance art in front of a you know big audience. Right. <laughs> And Biden has not done one either, I don't think. The, the new style is to speak briefly in the East Room, you know, the cable news. In other words, it's not a primetime address into our living rooms like it used to be, even as recently as Clinton. Well, yeah, maybe. Well, that's part of it. I think that is part of it. it. You know, as recently as 30 years ago, when a president wanted to talk to the country, he'd ask the networks for time. The networks would give it to him. And then there was a roadblock. Uh, you couldn't. But now we have a million channels. OK, I think it would have been good if. Certainly President Biden coming in fresh, if he'd done an Oval Office address once a month and it didn't have to be long, it could be just 10 or 15 minutes saying, here's where we are. Here's what we're up to. Here's what we think you ought to do. Here's where we're trying to go with things. And I don't know. I think that would be it wouldn't solve things, but it would be better than the sort of episodic. You never know what they're going to say. And I think that's true for any president in facing a crisis going back now, at least to President Bush. It is interesting that they've given up on that that mode of communicating. And, you know, the big three networks still command a bigger audience than most cable. I don't know about TikTok or YouTube (laughs) or whatever, but you can use them all. But the power of that pulpit um, doesn't seem like it's being maximized. And and because I can't remember the last time a president's actually sat in the Oval Office and, and made a speech to the nation either. And. We've had some opportunities, and it seems like missed opportunities. Yeah. 
It even took a long time for for Biden to uh, a historically long time for Biden to offer up a State of the Union address this year. Well, that's not entirely unusual. Incoming presidents usually they may do a joint address to Congress, but they usually don't do a formal State of the Union address. Although, remember, Sarah, the, the Constitution doesn't say the president should give a State of the Union address every year before a joint session. That actually started with Woodrow Wilson. The Constitution actually says the president shall provide information from time to time. <laughs> and it's now become this big spectacle we're used to. But there we are. Yeah, he could, he could send a surprise. They haven't figured out how to send it by tweet yet. Yeah. Well, 19th century presidents all just sent letters to Congress. That's what they did. And this oh. is why we have a political scientist here with us. But, you know, I wanted to add one more point to this. And, you know, we were talking about the reactions of center left and center right and so forth. And I'm, I'm just wondering how much and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but uh, I just I keep thinking that these these definitions are breaking down because people aren't fitting into people aren't fitting into where where we think that they normally sit. And I see that over the past. I've been in D.C. for about 24 years working on politics and international relations. And you just kind of see these these lines between center right or center left, conservative and liberal. It's all kind of merging a little bit, I think. And it's almost like we're in one of those eras where the political parties are swapping uh, pieces of their identity out, you know? And um, I just, I wonder whether, you know, what is the definition of a conservative going to be in four years or so? What's the definition of a liberal going to be? And, you know, this has happened before in American history. Steve knows this probably better than me, but you know, the parties, the parties change clothes and, um, you know, maybe they're changing clothes right now. Marco Rubio is into industrial policy. You know, there's a good example of it. Um, I said to a friend the other day, I said, I wouldn't be surprised if Republicans became the party of the working class in four years or so. They were a diverse working class party. And he looked at me like I was crazy, but Oh, I think that's already happened to a large extent, mm-hmm. although it's still somewhat incoherent. But no, I'm with you, Clarence. I listened to Marco Rubio talk about industrial policy, and I'm old enough to remember Walter Mondale in 1984 and thinking, my goodness, Mondale just died here a few months ago or mm-hmm. last year, I guess. And if he was still alive, he'd run now as a Republican. It's just amazing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, a, there is a famous Quaker that um, uh, by the name of Richard Nixon. Oh, I hoped he was going to say that. Yes. My favorite Quaker, too. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, uh, the uh, anniversary of his 1972 election win against George McGovern was uh, last week. And I just looked it up out of curiosity. And uh, the one thing that stuck with me was thinking that Nixon would be a moderate Republican right now. Mm. He might be a Democrat. He's yeah, pro-opening. He, he he's pro-normalizing. He's pro-normalizing relations with China. He found. He basically he started, started the EPA. The EPA. Yeah. I, I think Joe Manchin is probably to the right of Richard Nixon. Well, there's Joe no Manchin question of that. Joe, Joe Manchin is a Joe Kennedy era Democrat. Yeah, I always like yeah. to say that a, a true conservative is someone who didn't support Richard Nixon until after Watergate. 
but <laughs> that's that's a perspective. That's, well, that's fascinating. The, Steve. Well, no, I know a conservative at the time who said uh, after wage and price controls and the opening of China, Watergate was a breath of fresh air. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But back to this communications thing for a minute. Uh, and Please. so we're all steeped in the wonkiness of this, which is necessary. Um, but I do think that one problem with the climate and energy domain is that uh, the public policy attempts that come out of Washington are way too technical. So you think about the clean power plan that Obama tried to propose. I read through the thing that the EPA put out and it was, you know, incredibly complicated. The the thing that was proposed this year, what SEP, the clean electricity power program, is that what it was called? Uh, yeah. C-E-P. Likewise, that was going to be very technical and, and bureauc- uh, uh, technocratic. I'll put it that way. Uh, and I, I th- there's other problems here too, but I think those efforts are very hard to translate and explain to Americans in plain English that keeps their attention. I think the parallel that uh, climate communicators, I guess I'll put it that way, ought to embrace, it's one they probably won't like to hear at first, but if you think about it for a minute, it makes sense. It was the way Reagan talked about and, and introduced his idea for the Strategic Defense Initiative in 1983 uh, you know that was didn't get into great details about you know space lasers or you know the ground interceptors and all the rest of that it, the the peroration at the end was all about this is a challenge to the american scientific community it'll take 20 years uh but it seems to me the kind of challenges we've had before so it's all in general terms and on a sort of general vision and i do think that a lot of things said about climate and energy have now degenerated into cliches so you want to find some mm. fresh language and different mm-hmm. language because just repeating the same old slogans, uh, some of which have grave defects, but never mind that, I think is a dead end. Uh, and so I think we're a long way from some freshness and, and uh, approaches that are actually going to get people on board who right now are in the middle or resistant. Yeah, I've been trying to think of some new ones. As you know, at the Rainey Center, we talk about love is the answer and also nuclear or you carbon captured my heart. <laughs> right. Love come and nuclear. take it. Yes. Come and take it, but come and take our solar panels from our cold dead hands. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm stuck on love and nuclear. Yeah. The FCNL, by the way, is not a supporter of nuclear. Um, but it does support love. But, but it apps. Thank you very much. It does support love. You know, climate communications, <laughs> The word technocratic stuck out, Steve, because I came into this about a year ago. You know, I've been around and so forth, but I wanted to go deep on climate issues. And it is borderline inaccessible to the average person. I mean, I know a lot. Climate is hard. I mean, getting your head around it is hard. And it is, it is, that is a, it has a barrier to injury to it. And that makes it a challenge to talk to the American public about it because people, their eyes will glaze over. Um, You can say that this is important until you're blue in the face, but until you make it relatable. And so what we're trying to do with FCNL and as part of the faith community is really bring this out of the 60,000 foot realm and make it relatable to people in their everyday lives. Uh, that's why we work on environmental justice issues. And, you know, even with something like a price on carbon that we support, just trying to find ways to make all of these issues a little bit more relatable and show people. And I totally agree with what you said, Steve. This needs, 
when I think about climate, this should be, I don't know why I'm stuck on Marvel movies today, but like, this should be like a great adventure we're going on. It's like, you know, hearkening back to Reagan. They call the great communicator. My, my mother is somewhere rolling in the grave right now because she was like, Ronald Reagan's the devil. But he was an effective communicator. And he did with Star Wars or even with, you know, with, uh, with the Cold War. Putting it in these big terms, in these terms of this is a great mission that we're undertaking and, you know, we're in this, we're doing this together as a country. That used to be a feature of political communications for forever. I mean, I, it's a cliche, but I think back to when John Kennedy was talking about the race to the moon, you know, and when he made that speech about we're going to the moon, I don't think we even had the capability of going to the moon. But he said, we're going to do it by the end of this decade. And so I'm eager to see someone really grab this issue and talk about and paint a vision of the future that is compelling for people to buy into. And they say, yeah, we can do this. This happens for, you know, people in some parts of the political spectrum right now. But we need this to engage people across the political spectrum. Yes, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do here. You know, traditionally, Clarence and Steve are in different pools in the political spectrum, but they're here having a conversation. You know, that's a good question. It goes to what you said earlier. Everybody's changing their clothes, uh, trying to figure out who their audiences are and, and what problems their values can solve. Yeah, no, I didn't want to interrupt you there, but that's... That's the thing now. I feel like me personally, it's, yeah, I grew up Democrat primarily because my mother and grandmother were Democrats. And, you know, and I grew up in Maryland and there were no Republicans in Maryland. uh, Governor Marvin Mandel and some of the other great governors that we had in Maryland history took care of the Republican Party for a while. I'm a native Annapolitan. I can't believe they have a Republican governor right now. Yeah, I mean, so Republicans do pop up in Maryland, but yeah, like, so like, up, don't don't overlook Spiro Agnew. Oh yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was trying to I was trying to bury him quietly. Yeah, I know. He, he was called Richard Nixon's insurance policy, and it didn't work. <laughs> Spiro Agnew. Right. Oh, there, there, there's a movie to be made there. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so you brought with these Marylander right now is Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always point out. Pride Don't of, mess pride with Maryland girl. Don't yeah, mess with Maryland girl with my friend. But so, you know, just to finish the point on, you know, Steve and I, we probably are to a certain extent, but I would imagine there are a lot of things we agree on. And that's what I mean. I think that I, I, I think that there's a fluidity. Well, I'm just going to put it in my own terms. For me, there's much more fluidity in my beliefs and in my thinking these days. I don't like to... I don't consider myself a Democrat. I don't consider myself a Republican. I like good ideas. And, I mean, that might sound corny or cliche, but I think that the trap and the reason I wanted to interrupt you there is because mm-hmm. you get people get these labels and then they, and I'm not saying you were doing this, but people get these labels and then there's a whole cascading set of assumptions that come with those labels. And it's, 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 not comfortable, actually. Um, and it, and I think it limits your intellectual range to just say, well, 
I'm a Democrat. Democrats believe in X, Y, and Z, so I'm going to go along with this. I'm even feeling this in the climate community where, you know, progressive nonprofits and advocacy groups, they, we like X, Y, and Z, but we don't like A, B, and C. And to me, it's like, well, why not? Um, it, it, my personal views on nuclear are different than FCNLs. Um, I think carbon capture is something that is we should completely invest in, especially it could be the foundations for an entire economy, you know, an entirely new line of business. So I'm just... Especially just, when you bake hydrogen into that whole process. I, I just right? started learning. About, I, I yep. know so little about hydrogen that it's it's frightening. Um, oh, well, but, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, but no, and I don't want to ramble here, but I just, I, my whole point is that... I, I'm, I feel much more open and fluid with my thinking and and my willingness to accept a lot of different ideas and proposals. And so and I think that that's the way we all kind of have to be in this world, because just because the world is too complex for just Democrats and Republicans anymore. So important safety tip for you, Sarah, I don't recommend trying to bake hydrogen in your oven. I think you'll <laughs> find the results of that would be a little bit worse uh, to things. Uh, look, I appreciate what, how you look out for me, Steve. I really would, that be red, would that be red hydrogen? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, look, I, here's, here's what Clarence and I would agree about, uh, which are some issues. It would be what normal politics looks like. And we've been edging away from that for quite a long time by degrees, and maybe it's gotten worse lately. Um, and so in normal politics, uh, well, a, a key to normal politics, and it really comes clear uh, or is the worst example of where we don't have it, is in an environmental area and specifically climate change. Uh, I have said for a long time that you get the most progress in the world when the two parties compete over an issue or where the minority party is offering an alternative that even if it doesn't command votes, uh, at least has something plausible to it. So. Republicans and Democrats, especially on the state level, but even in Washington, have always had a good K-12 education game. You have to if you're a governor of either party. And so then what you get is you get compromises like No Child Left Behind 20 years ago, which everybody hates. That's not quite true, but but everybody's got something wrong with it. Well, that's called normal politics, the give and take of politics, uh, right? And we don't have that on climate. We don't have that um, in a few other areas. Uh, the second thing is something Clarence said about the labels. I don't actually mind labels, but it is a curious thing that I think it's fair to say that uh, on the left side of the spectrum, you have liberals, whoever understood, and nowadays progressives. A lot of overlap, but a lot of distinction, I suppose. On the right, we now have so many subdivisions that are intelligible. I mean, you can actually define what they mean. We've had neocons, theocons, libertarians, uh, nowadays natcons, the nationalist conservatives, uh, tradcons, <laughs> right? Religious oh, conservatives. What is the tradcon? Well, traditional conservatives. They'd be like, you know, uh, followers okay. of Russell Kirk, which aren't always the same, by the way, as, you know, religious conservatives. There's overlap. And I keep saying I want to uh, start grumpy cons uh, since I'm getting the get off my lawn age. But yeah, it goes back to the point you made earlier, Clarence, is uh, uh, I never would have thought, well, I'll say two things and then shut up. One is I never would have thought whichever one of those subdivisions you like that any definition of conservative would ever have included Donald Trump uh, or that the parties would largely trade places on trade, um, you know, for yes. 
A long time, it was the Republicans who were free traders. That's not their long-term history, by the way. And it was Democrats who were, uh, not entirely, they were split on this, but uh, skeptical or wanted to uh, restrict, uh, uh, slow down free trade. And now it's kind of gotten all scrambled. And right, uh, Joe Biden is lifting all of the tariffs that Trump uh, put in from chaotic way. Uh, and, you know, it's a strange world. I never would have predicted it in a thousand years. Are you uh, do you think Republicans are reverting to the norm in terms of trade? Because I think of Senator mm-hmm. Taft from the what was it, the 30s? Yeah, um, 40s, 50s. Right. Yeah. 40s or rather 40s or 50s. And do you feel like the Republicans are uh, by and large sort of shifting back to that more of that worldview on trade? Yeah, I know it. You know, if you go back a little more than a century ago, the big push for trade liberalization came from Democrats. And in the night, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a protectionist, as was Alexander Hamilton. And to the extent that Republicans are in some ways the heir of Hamilton's federalist views, uh, this is a reversion to the mean. Uh, I think the free trade um, orientation of Republicans may have been an artifact of the depression and especially the Cold War. And now we may be reverting to form. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's it's well, I'll say two things. It's really interesting how the end of the Cold War, I think we're still sort of seeing the uh, mm-hmm. the thawing, as it were, from <laughs> that. You know, when I came to D.C. in the mid to late 90s, everything was uh, free trade is good. We had a budget surplus. I was in the Clinton administration at the State Department. We left. There was a budget surplus. But a great it, Republican it, president by today's standards. <laughs> I think his second a, term, he may have been a great Republican president by Republican standards, to be frank. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. But uh, I had a know. friend who in 2016 said they were voting for the real Republican in the race, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. To your point earlier. But, yeah, Sarah, and Clarence's you know, point about parties changing clothes. Sarah, you know who says that about Bill Clinton's second term? It'll, it'll floor you. Arthur Laffer, the author of The Laffer Curve, the says Laffer Clinton, I, sec, I Clinton's second that. term was fantastic. So I believe that 100. Yeah. The other, the other point I wanted to make, when Steve, you're talking about two parties competing, one of the things that I'm working on, as part of my job at FCNL and with members of the faith community is uh, reaching out across the aisle uh, to both parties. We reach out, we do a lot of work with Democrats, obviously, but uh, maintaining our relationships and listening to Republican ideas on the climate and, you know, getting them back onto the field as it were to compete and have a competition of ideas over what are the best climate solutions. That's something that we are really focused on doing because any real long-term solution to a climate crisis that comes out of the U.S. is going to have to be built on on bipartisan consensus. And that sounds hopelessly naive coming out of my mouth right now, I know, but it's that's the only way anything is really going to last. I agree with you completely, Clarence. And one of the interesting things to me is if you look at the history of environmental policymaking, we'll take a a swerve into my academic area of expertise. As I like to say, the only known conservative with a master's degree in international environmental law. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm the only one. If you are a conservative out there that has also such a degree, please call. <laughs> I can't wait to meet you. Um, the big environmental policy changes or legislation in this country, they've been, for the most part, bipartisan. And it's interesting, they've usually been Democratic legislatures, so a Democratic Congress, and a Republican president. Uh, one of the most recent examples are the Clean Air Act amendments during the George H.W. Bush administration. Exactly. You had Democratic majorities in the House and Senate. You had a Republican president who was concerned about climate change, who wanted to be an environment focused president. You know, at least that's what he said at the time. You know, I believe it was during his administration as well that the United States joined the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Steve is mm -hmm. nodding vigorously, yep. which means I have not lost my mind and might be correct there. Yep. So correct. I think I, I think from a climate perspective, that can give a lot of hope. Uh, next Congress, if we have a split with a Democratic president and a Republican House and Senate, we might have more of a chance for big climate policy than we do right now. Uh, in fact, you would you could argue I look at the Energy Policy Act of 2020 spearheaded by Republicans, spearheaded on a bipartisan basis. Cory Booker and Lisa Murkowski in the Senate. You had folks like Greg Walden in the House, for example. Mm. And it had a number of policies designed to reduce carbon emissions that both Republicans and Democrats signed off on working together. And you had in that case, you had a Republican president and you had a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House. So that is the history of environmental policymaking at the federal level in this country. And I think we would all do well to embrace and remember that. I think there's two lessons out of that, Sarah. Um I mean, I was uh, I wasn't involved, but I was actively following the 1990 Clean Air Act amendment process. And that took at least a year and a half. And so it wasn't so much, you know, the White House and Democrats. You had a lot of Republican senators. You know, Pete Wilson was senator then from my home state, uh, was closely following all that in the 1990 because you know we have the worst air pollution problem uh, in the country. Back and then. Pete from my home state. Yes. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, that's a fun story for another day. Um, and right. Although it is true that in 1977, you know, that was another important milestone, the Clean Air Act. And that was under a Democrat, Jimmy Carter. And there there's some fascinating work on all that. That was Democrats fighting with each other. It was, you know, John Dingell from Michigan, the, the congressman from General Motors. I used to like to call him. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's a fascinating case study of not parties, but interests. Right. And so all those things have to be factored in. I think uh, your mention of the 2020, uh, whatever it's called, energy policy bill that passed, I think what's important to notice there was it was not attempting to be a comprehensive, gigantic, grand strategy bill. It was incremental. What what steps can we take now that put us five yards down the field? We're now, you know, we're now in the age of the NFL where every play is the long bomb. And I miss the old days of Woody Hayes and grind it out with three yards in a cloud of dust. I think that's a better policy model. Uh, it, it's not satisfying environmentalists. And I get that. Um, but I think. I'll just end with this because Clarence mentioned it. I think the idea that we're going to be net zero by 2050 
you know, net zero is a phrase that has been controversial among some environmentalists. What does that mean? I think in practical terms, it, it entirely depends on how much carbon capture we're actually going to be able to develop and implement in the system. Answer that question, and then net zero becomes a lot easier to figure out. Um, but I think, you know, that's going to take a while. You, you can't do these things by fiat necessarily from uh, from Washington. I can't get you guys to disagree. This is so frustrating. But spoiler okay. alert, no. It's going to be, you know, we'll do what we're doing now. I, I, I did want to say that there's a lot of feeling that, you know, if Republicans take over the Congress in the midterms, then everything's going to come to an end. And, you know, we're not going to be able to do X, Y, or Z. And I've lived through enough administrations and, you know, president of one party, as has Steve, as have all of us, president of one party, Congress of the other. I, I refuse to give up even before the event. And you never, you never know what could come out of it. And so I hope that as breakthrough likes to call it, uh, some quiet climate policy can happen, um, in the next few years, you know, once we get past, uh, reconciliation and whatever happens, what happens with that. Ooh, reconciliation. I think I have another opportunity to get you guys to disagree. <laughs> Looking at everything that's going on right now. Give me your take on whether or not you think res- reconciliation is going to make it before the end of the year. And if, if it doesn't, do you think they can get it done next year? I'll start and I'll say yes. Um, I think they can get it done before the end of the year. I think that they have to get it done before the end of the year. I think they have to get it done, period, because the politics of it are are really important for this administration. And also... Politics aside, there are some really good programs with it. The clean energy tax incentives, the tax incentives for clean transportation. um, Those are really, you know, that's $235 billion worth of uh, uh, incentives. And I think that that can have a significant impact. Uh, So, yeah, I think that they can get it done. Um, if it got kicked to next year, I, I can't even conceptualize. Either people talk about 2030. I, I can't even deal with 2021 right now um, or 2022 or so. So, I'm, so many I'm, of us agree with you on that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think, I think that they'll get it done. I think that um, there's a need to get it done. And, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot riding on it for a lot of people. So, yeah. I'm optimistic. Yeah, here I guess we uh, there may be some points contact, points of contact of disagreement. Um, I think they will pass something. The question is going to be what's going to end up in it. it. It's like a Rubik's cube; it changes almost every day. Uh, and so the political imperative to pass something seems to have taken over what's actually in it. And we know why: it's because the margins are so small—a tied Senate and you know a four-vote margin in the House. And it seems to me that uh, uh, it's a political disaster if they don't pass it, if it, f- it collapses ignominiously. That is a political disaster for Democrats. I don't think passing it actually helps them that much politically for a bunch of reasons. But And here's why I think they've made an unbelievable mistake that really surprises me coming from Biden, who's you know been around for 50 years in Washington. Uh, a lot of the general progressive language was we have a once in a generation chance for fundamental change like the New Deal and the Great Society. Well, there's two important differences there. One is both of those periods of fundamental change and reform happened with durable, large Democratic majorities. And they weren't done all at once. They weren't done in one bill. 
the New Deal was, you know, 100 pieces of legislation and new agencies spread out over eight years. Over, over yeah, over. Right. The Great Society Aging happened. the squad. Right. The squad needs to invite you, Steve, well, to uh, give them right. a little history lesson to help them out. Yeah, well, on the Great Society. I mean, big Democratic majorities after the 64 landslide, but it wasn't all one big bill. It was, you know, like I think 110 separate bills Johnson sent up, and I think 105 of them passed. Some very big, like Medicare and Medicaid and the civil rights legislation. Some very small and targeted, some that didn't survive, right? You know, they they either collapsed or were later abolished. Um, but the point is, is uh, it, it's absolute madness to say we're going to wrap up all these things we want, never mind the climate and energy stuff, but, you know, child care and uh, lower prescription drugs and uh, um, all the various tax changes with the tax credits for children, which, you know, in this morning, out tonight, I don't know. Uh, and I, for one thing, um Again, it's, it's political incompetence. When Johnson or Roosevelt were passing these individual pieces of legislation, they get to sign, here's a child care bill. Here's Medicaid for low-income people. You get to celebrate each one of them, and it builds your political momentum. Right now, Democrats are tearing themselves apart over this package they want to wrap as much as they can into. Uh, and, you know, I know people say parts of it pull well with the public, but I think the whole thing is kind of people can't get their hands around it. And so anyway, I, you know, as a Republican, <laughs> I still am one. I sit back and watch this with great amusement saying I cannot un- I could understand how some you know, like Jimmy Carter came to Washington. and was completely foolish. Uh, I cannot fathom why Joe Biden has not been more uh, astute about all this. There's this interesting desire in politics these days to like hit that. Steve used a great uh, analogy before, like throwing it deep. Everyone wants to throw it deep. Obamacare was throwing it deep. Hillary Clinton's health care reform. That was one of the first things I actually had to sit down and read when I worked for (laughs) as a uh, junior assistant to a lobbyist. Oh, you poor man. (laughs) Yeah, read read this many thousand page thing. And it's just interesting that the the political world in the U.S. these days just likes to, or in the 21st century, just likes to go for these big, massive, and I think it's the optics and so forth. But you're right, Steve. And, you know, I I love reading about history. And I remember reading about the New Deal. I was like, oh, okay. It it was like this piece and then this piece. And building, it made me think of, like, uh, building cathedrals back in, you know, yeah. back in the Middle Ages or so. Um, it's it's the work of, hopefully it doesn't take that long, but uh, it's the work of generations to build some of these things, to improve health care, to the climate crisis, I think. It's the work of generations to 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 tackle some of these, the enormous challenges facing the country, whether it's climate, whether it's health care infrastructure, you name it. Usually the deal with Steve and I is that I get to interrupt him and he gets to mansplain me. Um, But we're reversing it here. I just wanted to say that is that kind of multi-generational perspective is a very lovely Quaker perspective. So excellent work there. Thank you. Well, one additional thought. One problem we're having right now, and it afflicts both parties, is because the two parties are so evenly matched, which hasn't always been true in history, you have you know durable Republican rule after the Civil War, durable Democratic rule with a few ebbs and flows after the New Deal. 
And now for going on 30 years, we've had political power uh, ebbing back and forth very quickly sometimes. Uh, and what that meant is you can't have a multi-generational majority that uh, that builds like the New Deal did into the Great Society. And it's what it's meant for both parties is if you have a small majority and you're likely to think it's temporary, then you go for it. You know, the, the uh, so I understand, I guess, a bit of why Democrats, as Republicans did under Trump, as they did under George W. Bush, think, well, we've just got to get what we can now because we're going to lose our majority. And so I understand the impulse of that. But I think that's long term bad politics and it makes, moves us more toward a parliamentary system and party government. And that's not that doesn't fit us very well. But that's where we're tending. We almost have the we almost have a parliamentary system with a presidential system on yep. top of it. Right yep, now. Exactly. We almost have the worst possible combination because <laughs> yeah. I almost wish we had a parliamentary system so we could just go in a particular direction and it would be clear and it's like this is what we're going to do and if people don't like it then you you can vote out the you know vote for the other side or so but now we've got like the Italian parliament, basically from the, from the nineties or so, you know, with, uh, with the French style chief executive. And it's just, it's, it's borderline chaotic to be honest with you. And it's just, I don't know what's going to break that, but something will need to force this system to come to a different equilibrium soon. I think. What's interesting to me is that COVID didn't, Right. And COVID was a much more tangible crisis than climate changes at this time. I'm very. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just I was agreeing with you. The our, our reaction to COVID, the political system's reaction to COVID has been absolutely fascinating to me because I think it sort of demonstrated to the public that. It's almost like what, what are those medical exams where they they shoot the dye through you to see where you know where the holes in you are or something like that? I don't know, but I think that the U.S. response to COVID and the political impact of the response to COVID has been fascinating because it demonstrates certain weaknesses that our system has that I don't think that we realized it actually has, and. Mm. I, you know, I, I feel like it's almost like a it's illuminated something about the lack of what we have with this current system. And I can't put my finger on it right now, but it's it's really concerning because I, I guess I'm I'm groping verbally here towards state capacity. There's something about the capacity of the of our administrative state that seems to be lacking right now. And COVID highlighted it. I don't think yeah. it was just Trump. I think it was just a, there's there's just a yeah. certain level of breakdown that that has happened to the to the functions of the state in this country. Well, it, first of all, Sarah, this is not over yet. I mean, we've have you know more innings to go, maybe many more innings to go, depending on whether there's a fourth wave spike again at some point in the next six months. And so it could get worse. I'm not sure. Uh, I say worse. Uh, you know, more political dysfunction. Uh, Clarence is really trying to point at 
federalism, right? <laughs> the problematic aspect of states' rights, but the fact that we have divided the police powers mostly as state power. You know, Trump actually, <laughs> for one of his rare moments of actual clarity about how our system works, <laughs> remember he thought there were 12 <laughs> articles in the Constitution at one point, uh, said, no, I don't actually have the power for states to declare, I don't have the power to declare lockdowns and certain other things. That's up to states to do, which I think is you know, legally speaking correct. Um, but that's always been a, a you know tension defect in, in our system from the very beginning, right? Um, and, Which is something but, I'd like to point out, too, that Biden has also observed, for the most part, these state powers, right? You have to wear a mask in an airport under federal law, yeah. but states have had the right to continue to do what they thought was best. Yeah, and I, I've always hated the laboratories of democracy phrase that came to us from Brandeis in a really terrible opinion, but that's another story for another day. Uh, I don't know the... You know, the OSHA mandate that's now been stayed by the Fifth Circuit, it seems to me a real clear illustration of the incoherence of things. Um, it's only going to apply to employers greater than 100. Well, that's because the old statutes gave OSHA that jurisdictional threshold, right? Uh, the fact that it took, you know, it took, I was counting the days. It took, I think, 50 days from uh, Biden's initial declaration that we're going to have a vaccine mandate for employees until you actually got a rule in the federal register from OSHA. And that's speedy. Well, in a certain way, it's speedy. It's skip notice and comment period. And there are emergency provisions to do that kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, the, the rent moratorium or the eviction moratorium from the CDC. That was an odd thing. I understand why, if you trace yeah. out the logic. But, no, I'm, I'm not saying that the Biden administration hasn't tried to do some creative things. I think the rent moratorium, <laughs> the Supreme Court was really clear. Like, you can't do this. Yeah. Um, but you do see, in many cases, governors still being able to make those choices. And that's because it's part of our system. The system's designed that way. Well, look, you could do all of those things if Congress would pass a law, right? Uh, you, you know the old Youngstown Steel case that said, no, Mr. Truman, you can't seize the steel industry unless Congress says you can. And I think the same precedent applies now. And Congress says uh, they're, all, uh, <laughs> they're all tangled up in their irreconcilable differences over reconciliation. Conciliation. I'll put it that oh way. Oh my goodness! Oh, I love that. The, I that's going to be the title of my book: Irreconcilable Reconciliation. I am. I'm so sad that we are coming towards the close of our time talking. I feel like we should do this more often. My brain is all revved up because you're both so brilliant. You have me thinking about everything. Uh, to kind of close things out, I'd like to make things a little more personal. I try to do this every podcast. I don't always ask the same question, but one question I frequently ask is what would you tell 13 or 14 year old Steve or Clarence about life? What advice would you give them at that age? <laughs> okay. Well, right. So you're, that's a fat, slow pitch over the middle of the plate. I always tell young people that when you're young, you should be conservative. And as you get older, you should become more conservative. <laughs> <laughs> You asked. <laughs> you know, I think that's what's happened to me. I am not going to lie. Does it mean I'm heartless? <laughs> I don't think so. I think I'm nice, but it's that nuclear it's powered tell. heart you have. See, and you've got one of those Marvel right. universe hearts going on, like Iron yes, Man. So much love. <laughs> right. <laughs> what would I tell 15 year old Clarence? This was only a, this was only like 10 years ago, so it's still fresh enough <laughs> in my mind. Um, you know, 
So um, I would tell him to, I would say, back yourself and don't be intimidated by titles or degrees or, you know, perceived status and just uh, go for it and back yourself. That's no. that's great advice. One of my uh, one of my favorite people, uh, Jimmy James, is married to Erica James, who is the dean of Wharton, first mm-hmm. African American woman to serve as the dean at Wharton, and she says, "Always bet on yourself." And, yeah. and I think that's great advice. Yeah, Always yeah, bet on yourself. Yeah. Even when, or especially if you're a conservative. Can, can I actually give a little more serious answer? I use that to of tell course. a half joke, right? Uh, yes. This is way away from the topics we're putting, uh, uh, t- treating here. I, I keep hearing and seeing some data that young people are, well, maybe a little older, you know, Gen Zers. I'm not sure where these lines all divide, but there's much less romance going on. I think I would tell a teenager, maybe not 14, but certainly 16, 17, 18, you should want to fall in love. A lot of young people you hear aren't doing that. They're afraid of doing it. They're, you know, it was the old guys afraid of commitment. But I mean, I think there may be less old fashioned romance happening for a whole bunch of reasons that I think are very bad. And so, and I'd say, yeah, it's going to end badly. It does for everybody when they're young, um, the first two or three times out, but that's good for you. And I think it's bad that this may, may actually be happening. So love is the answer and also yep. nuclear. <laughs> Love and nuclear. We have a Jim we have socks. We have socks. We have stickers. We have T-shirts. It's one of our things. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. I hope we can do this again together in person, if not on yeah. a podcast. And very soon, uh, look both of these gentlemen up. They are smart fellows. You can find them on Twitter. You can find them on the internet and you will be richer for engaging with their intellectual work and their humanity. Thank you so much for joining us today, gentlemen. And thank you listeners for listening in to Policy for the People, the official podcast of the Joseph Rainey Center for Public Policy, where we try to bring politics and D.C. to Main Street and real Americans so they can understand how everything that's going on in this world means something to them. Thank you so much to our executive producer, Jeremy Hurowitz, to our technology manager, Shannon Callahan, who helps make this happen, to Jamie Majdi, who does project coordination for the podcast, and also to Jeremy Hurowitz for providing our excellent musical score for our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back next week with more fun games and conversation and out-of-the-box political thinking just for you, the American people. Bye.